This message is from Grace Church, located in Frisco, a suburb of Dallas-Fort Worth. The Grace Church website is gracechurchfrisco.org. Craig Cabanis, the lead pastor, is the speaker for this message. We're in a series on the book of Acts, and so open your Bibles to Hebrews 10, uh, because we're going to take a, a little journey out of, he, of Acts for two weeks. I'm going to do a mini-series, a two-week series, on, um, on the theme of community. Building community is one of our core values as a church. And so uh, I want to I talk about that because we're at this stage in the life of our church where we, if you were at our members meeting last month, we talked about, or I guess it was this month, it was in August, wasn't it? We talked about, uh, no, this is September, isn't it? It was last month, okay. Well, I'm confused. September 1 today, welcome September. Uh, we talked about the fact that we're kind of in, in, the, in a time of community reset. We are resetting uh, sort of, or at least giving an opportunity to reset uh, our community groups. And so I wanted to look at uh, passage of scripture that has to do with uh, relationships in the church. So let me pray, and then we'll jump in. Father, we thank you for today that you uh, are a God of new beginnings. Thank you for the new life we have in Christ. Uh, thank you for the opportunity to introduce new people to that life, even through the bridge this week. And thank you for the opportunity to have a reset, a reboot, a fresh start for some in our small groups. And we pray that as we look at this passage today, that you'd speak very clearly to us uh, about uh, your calling to us. Lord, talk to us from your word, to our hearts, about the rich privilege of relationship, of the one another's, of being a part of a spiritual family. So Lord, we ask that you would speak to us and that you would help us today. Fill me with your spirit. Give me strength and clarity of mind. Give us all ears to hear and hearts to respond to your holy scripture. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, if you read the scripture, uh, one undeniable conclusion is this, that God is about building a people for himself. We, we looked at this last week when we talked about, uh, uh, we talked about God coming to Abraham and, and calling him to follow him, that God has always been about building a people for himself. When you get to the New Testament, you see a number of images, metaphors, pictures that the writers give to describe the church. So, for instance, uh, Paul says in 1 Corinthians that the church is like a body, that it's like parts, a hand, and a wrist, an arm. It's like parts that are joined together inseparably in one whole. Or he says that we're like a family. He addresses the household of God, like a family that lives together uh, in a home. Or uh, we read this morning and elsewhere, Peter says that the, the church is like a spiritual house, like a temple, only it's a temple that is built together with stones and the stones are people. It's a living temple. So all these pictures say that the church is a corporate body. It's a, it's a group. It's not just individual. Individuals, though we meet Christ as individuals, God individually saves us, God individually forgives us, God individually gives us eternal life, but then he joins us together with a people, a church community. And with a church community, we grow up together. We build one another up. We're part of something bigger than ourselves. We're called to invest beyond ourselves, outside of ourselves. We're called to bear one another's burdens and encourage one another and strengthen one another. So God has this plan that we would mature and grow up in him together with others. And not only that, but we are able to be a witness that is a testimony or an example 
of who he is and what he's done. So the church, a diverse group of people built together, reflect the power of the gospel to join people together. So the church has an ability to communicate an example or a witness that none of us individually ever could. You can give a personal witness, and we're called to, but together there is a witness that we make that is uh, glorious, that God calls us all to be a part of. And this is countercultural. Very countercultural. I mean, in America, it's acceptable to be spiritual. Uh, it's acceptable to be moral if you keep that private and don't share your morality with anyone else. In Dallas, it's even acceptable to attend church. Uh, if you don't make too big of a deal about that, it's especially acceptable to maybe just show up every so often kind of as a consumer and uh, receive some goods and services to further you along in your spiritual development. So that's not really a big deal. However, if we're talking about really investing our lives with other people, if we're talking about getting involved in people's lives when, when life is messy, if we're talking about life on life with real people, who have problems and trials and sins and suffering and difficulty in their lives. If we're called to join together and bear one another's burdens, to invest in a community where we're serving together, praying together, reading God's Word together, helping one another with practical needs, uh, worshiping together, laughing together, just sharing life together. If we're giving our time, our energy, our money together, if we're seeking to mature as disciples together, and then we are together as a people seeking to reach our city, city for Christ, that's countercultural. And that's not a, really an acceptable idea. That's nuts in our culture. And yet that's exactly what we find as we've read through the book of Acts, that these are the kind of people that God, this is the kind of mission that God put his people on. There is no just sort of attend a meeting as part of your to-do list of all the things we do in our life, like being on the Thursday night bowling league or something. Don't do that because we got bridge. Come to bridge and not the bowling league. But you know what I'm saying? It's not, it's not just like something we do. This is, this is our life. This is who we are. This is orienting ourselves around the people of God, the family of God, the body of Christ, the spiritual house, the temple that God is building. And, and wouldn't we want to do that? I mean, if that's what God is doing, if God is building a people for himself, starting with Abram, through Israel, to Jesus, and in the book of Acts, starting with the church, if that's what God is about, why would we want to settle for anything less? I mean, who would want to settle for some thin, sort of anemic, emaciated, false sort of veneer of Christianity where we just show up once a week, once a month, twice a year for a meeting and miss out on what God is really doing in changing people's lives as they interact in community. God wants us to experience his fullness in community. And so we are having a community reset, which I'll talk about briefly. We talked about at our members meeting recently. Today I want to look at a scripture that talks about one aspect of community, and it does so by talking, first of all, the author of Hebrews talks about our relationship with God and Christ, and then he talks about what implications that has for how we relate to God's people. So let's look at 10, chapter 10, verses 19 through 25. Therefore, brothers, 
Since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience, and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more, as you see the day drawing near. Well, the, the starting point of this little section of, of the book of Hebrews is the writer revealing something that has happened because of Jesus, because of his death, burial, and resurrection. And what has happened is that we have a new access to God. Much of the book of Hebrews is about comparing the old covenant, that was life in Israel, with the new covenant, that is life after Jesus Christ, and showing the stark differences, showing how much better it is now that Christ has come and all that we have. And the point he's making here is that we have new access. Verse 19, we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus. See, under the old covenant, in the temple, the presence of God was cordoned off, was curtained off from the people. And so God's, uh, God dwelt with the, in the Ark of the Covenant um, in a unique way behind a curtain. And the high priest went in once a year, only once a year, to sprinkle blood, in essence, to confess the sins of the people, to, to make, make sacrifice for the people once a year. But when Jesus died on the cross, the curtain tore representing, miraculously tore, representing that now we have access to God through Jesus Christ. We can come right into God's presence without cowering, without trembling if we are in Jesus Christ, but coming with a confidence knowing that He calls us to Himself, that our sins are forgiven. Look at the next verse, 20. By the new and living way that He opened for us through the curtain, that is... Through his flesh. So his body was torn, and so through the tearing of his body, in the same way the curtain is torn, and we now have access to God the Father. Verse 21, we have a great priest over the house of God. So now if you're a Christian, you don't need a sacrifice. There's not a weekly sacrifice, a daily sacrifice, an annual sacrifice. There was one sacrifice, Jesus Christ, once and for all. You don't need a priest to get to God the Father. Jesus is the great priest. So if you believe in Him, He is the access to the Father. You can be in the Father's presence. You can know God. God changes our lives. His Spirit dwells in us. We encounter Him through belief in Christ. So through Christ we are forgiven. Through Christ we have a way to the Father. Through Christ we have a new access. So he's making this point. Look, everything is different after Jesus if you believe in Him. You have a relationship with God that those before Jesus could have only dreamed of. You have access to God that only the priest had once a year in some ways. You have that access 24-7 through Jesus with God the Father. So based on that amazing truth, he gives three exhortations here, three verbs, three commands. Uh, first of all, he says, draw near. 
Secondly, he says, hold on. And thirdly, he says, stir up. So draw near, hold on, and stir up. I'm going to talk about the first two very briefly, and I'm going to camp on the third one, this idea of stirring up. So verse 22, he says, based on all that I just read from the scripture and talked about, verse 22, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience, and let our bodies washed and our bodies washed with pure water. So he's saying you have a new access, therefore come to God. Draw near to his presence. Don't hold back. Don't lie at a distance. Don't don't think that somehow you're not welcomed in the presence of God. You're not welcome to interact with God. You're not welcome to worship God. Don't think that if you're a believer in Jesus Christ. Don't believe the lie that says you've got to stay outside, metaphorically speaking anyway, that that you've got to stay at a distance, that you've got to pay for your sins, that you've got to change and then God will welcome you. That you've got to get a little bit better and then he'll welcome you. That you've got to stop doing that thing that you said a hundred times you would stop doing. Once you've stopped, then God will accept you. But you did it again. So you need to feel guilty for a day, a week, a month, six months, whatever it is. Don't believe those lies. We have access to the Father in Jesus. He has sprinkled clean our evil consciences. He has washed our bodies with pure water. What is that all about? That's just ceremonial language. That's ceremonial stuff that happened at the temple to represent forgiveness. And he's saying that stuff's all happened to you in Jesus. Your mind, your conscience can be clear and free in Christ. So come with full assurance because... Of the blood of Jesus. Draw near. I believe God wants every one of us to sense, I would even say to feel His welcome. And we will only feel His welcome when we understand His welcome. And we will only understand His welcome as we look to Jesus. And we will only look to Jesus and understand His welcome when we look to the Scripture and meditate on the scripture like we're reading right now, that he says, draw near. He doesn't say, hold back. He doesn't say, stay away. He doesn't say, feel bad. He doesn't say, God is mad at you. He doesn't say, God is, uh, God is distant. He says, draw near through Christ. If, if you don't feel, if you don't sense, if you don't know, if you don't understand the welcome of God, If we don't, I mean, I I understand that as well. I understand that challenge as well. If we don't, then we need to consider where are we looking? Are we looking inwardly, primarily evaluating ourselves and our weaknesses, our sins, the things that we do that disobey the Scripture, or are we looking to Christ who has made a way? Because perspective means everything here. Draw near in full assurance of faith, looking to Christ. Secondly, he says, not only draw near, but verse 23, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering for he who promised is faithful. Hold on to the confession of our faith, our belief in Christ. So he's saying based on everything Jesus has done, he's made a way. So hold on. Now we can look at other scriptures that say he's holding on to us. But here it says, hold on. Don't let go. Don't give up. 
Now, the believers in the book of Hebrews are suffering persecution, and that's really an important contextual, that's an important part of their context. Look at verse 32. We didn't read there, but look there in the same chapter, 10. He says, But recall the former days when after you were enlightened, that is, after you believed, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, and sometimes being partners with those so treated. For you had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward. He's saying, hold on to your faith. They are being persecuted. They've had their stuff plundered. They've been reproached. Um, they've, some of them have been imprisoned. And so he's saying, based on all of that, listen, don't let go, but hold on. Hold on to your faith. Hold on to Christ. Keep believing. Keep trusting. Keep drawing near. So these are the first two exhortations. Based on the fact that Jesus has brought you to the Father and has given you new life and has made a new way, two things. Come to God the Father. Draw near to him. Pursue him. Number two, hold on to your faith, even in difficult times. Now, if that's all we had, we, we could draw the conclusion that the Christian life is sort of a, uh, just sort of an individual me and Jesus kind of thing. If that's all we had, then I think the application to the message right now would be go get your Bible, go get alone with Jesus, which that, that's good application, but get your Bible, get alone with Jesus, and just draw near to God and just hold on to him. You're, di- you're dismissed. But that's, that's not what he says. He, he gives a third category that ultimately we are to do those things together. Look at verse 30, uh, I'm sorry, verse 24. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, some but encouraging one another. Stir up one another, encourage one another, all the more as you see the day you see the day drawing near. So he starts with consider how to stir up one another to loving good deeds. Based on what Christ has done for you, draw near to him, but draw near to others as well. He's saying don't separate yourselves from others, but draw near to others. Draw near to God, draw near to one another, and, and draw near to God together, ultimately, he says. The access you have to God is certainly, the first few verses, the first two exhortations, it's certainly an individual access, but it's not individualistic. It's individual, you do encounter God personally, but it's not individualistic, meaning that that's the sum total, or that that's the ultimate goal. That is a means to you joining together with God's people to actively pursue Christ together with others. Look at what he says. He says, consider, verse 24, consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. Now, the word consider is not the kind of things like, hey, would you just consider this? We use it that way sometimes. We just consider this. Hmm, just sort of a hmm, that's interesting. That kind of a consider. It's more, it's more a sense of think about this. Focus on how, we could say it that way, focus on how you can stir up one another to love and good deeds. Give it some serious thought. Pay attention. That'd be a way to say, pay attention. Based on what Christ has done for us, pay attention to how you could stir up someone else to love and good deeds. Not just, it's important, not just stir them up. 
We've had some of that. Uh, it's not just stir people up, okay? Don't just go and stir people up, but stir them up towards uh, love and good deeds. Not just be provocative to stir people, or not just, not that, but stir people up to love and good deeds. The NIV says spur one another on that we could spur each other, that we could give each other uh, a little helpful kick that would get us charging forward. Spur each other up. Be in community in such a way that your interactions together help people grow in love and in good works. You see, what he's saying here is that you each as Christians have an individual relationship with Christ, but your concerns should be beyond your own relationship with Christ, beyond your spouse's relationship with Christ, beyond your children's relationship with Christ. You should have a concern for those you're in community with. Yes, you have access to God, but consider how you can help others love. Consider how you could help others do good works Consider how you could encourage one another as we wait for Christ to return. That's what it means when he says, as you see, the day drawing near. So it, it's, it's not merely enough to have access, but you, he's saying, look around and make sure everybody else is pursuing God. You pursue God, but make sure those you're in relationship with, that they feel free access. It's great if you feel welcome before the Lord, but if someone else doesn't, see how you can come alongside and help them. Love God and love others. See how you can help them honor God with their lives. See, community means that there is a, there is an, uh, there is a foundational concern for the spiritual well-being of others. That's part of the Christian life. That's part of church involvement. That's part of church membership. That's part of church participation, that we help one another, love one another. See, the Bible tells us, I think we would all know, hey, the Bible says love one another, but it actually says help one another love one another. Actually, here he says stir people up to love one another. Encourage people to love one another. So you love them, and you help them love other people. How does that happen? How does that happen? Well, he doesn't give a full description of how it happens, but he gives a very, very introductory way, a very introductory manner of accomplishing this lofty goal of stirring people up to love and good deeds. And here's what he says. Just show up. I mean, that's what he says. Just show up. I find this fascinating. Because he's talking about all this daunting theology, right? The, the access into the Holy of Holies through the atonement of the blood of the Lamb. Draw near because of that. He's talking about consciences cleansed because blood has been sprinkled on the conscience, on the person. He's talking about this draw near in worship. He's talking, um, he, he's talking as well about holding fast without wavering to the confession of hope. So there's all this theological language. Then he says, stir each other up and do that by just showing up. That, that's really what he says. Consider how to stir one another up to love and good works. 25. Not neglecting to meet together. Meet together. Be together. That's what he says. As is the habit of some, there are some people that don't do that, but encourage one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Just show up is what he says. Meet together. You've got to do more than that, but, but that's a starting place. Meet together. You'll encourage one another as you meet together. 
the theologian Woody Allen said, 80% of success is showing up. 80% of success is showing up. In, in some jobs, that's 100% of success, and in some, maybe it requires a little more. So we could argue about the percentages. But he's making a point. 80% of success is showing up. Don't neglect to meet together. That had become a habit of some. Uh, and you can see how in their context it's vital. I mean, we're a persecuted people in Hebrews. They're a persecuted people. They have people standing against them. They have people taking their goods. They have people throwing them in jail. They have people writing them out of the family will. You became a Christian, you're out of the family. You're out of the family will. You are, you are dead to us. So they have people suffering persecution. So here, it's important. We've got to stick together, guys. We have a we are all taking shots, so let's come together and let's strengthen each other. If we meet together, we can encourage each other all the more as we see the day drawing nigh. When you're in persecution, you look forward to Jesus coming back. When people are stealing your stuff, you look forward to Jesus coming back. When you live in our culture, you say, well, at least wait till Tuesday. I'm off tomorrow. I mean, when you live in luxury and comfort like we do, you're not just living. Come Jesus today. I mean, you have those days. But oftentimes we're saying, you know, don't come before uh, I get married or before our baby's born or I'm up for a promotion. Lord, please let me get that. So we're just enjoying life. But these people are suffering. They're being persecuted. And he's saying, you guys be together. Be together. You've got to strengthen one another. You've got to encourage one another. You've got to stir each other up. Some of you guys, you're in the habit of not getting together. And you are going to suffer alone. You're going to be isolated. And you know what? You're not going to hold on to the confession of your hope. You're going to let go when it's all of them against you. But if we're together supporting, helping one another, worshiping, fellowshipping, encouraging, strengthening one another, we can make it together. That's their context. That's our context too. In some ways it could be argued that it's easier to stick together in adversity. It's a lot harder in prosperity to be together. It's harder to see your need. In adversity, it's easier. I, I want to say he's got to tell them, hey, some of you guys are in the habit of not being together when you're struggling. It's almost like saying, you know, um, if you go to the doctor, God forbid, tomorrow and get a diagnosis of terminal cancer, it will affect your prayer life. You will not be, need to be told, hey, start praying. You'll be like, I'm praying. You need to be reminded of prayer when you don't have any apparent needs. When you feel good and there's food in the pantry and you've got a party this afternoon, it's Labor Day weekend. And, and that's when prayer, when, it's, when there's money in the bank, oh yeah, I, I need to work on my prayer life. When everybody's doing pretty well, I need to work on my prayer life. When I could die in six months, I'm praying. Same here. When you might get arrested and thrown together, you need some Christian encouragement. Wednesday night, yeah, I'd like to be with somebody because I might get arrested tomorrow. So why don't we pray tonight? As opposed to, now what's on? Oh, I guess we could DVR it, but I'd really rather watch it live than go be with somebody on a Wednesday night and talk about the Bible. See, in prosperity, I think it's harder for us than it is for them. I think we need it all the more because we have so many temptations to give ourselves to other things. When you're in their situation, you want to give yourself to being together and needing help. Tomorrow, tomorrow, many in the room will be, and I will be, grilling 
grilling out. We have some people come over. We'll be grilling tomorrow. You'll probably be grilling. Sort of, you know, the uh, we start Memorial Day, we end Labor Day. You can, it's still 100 degrees for 60 more days anyway, so you can still grill here. Um, which doesn't make any sense. I was recently grilling outside. I, I wasn't covered, and it was, uh, I had moved the grill out, and it was like 103. I was grilling outside. I'm thinking, why are we doing this in the winter? You grill in the summer here. That makes no sense. 103, I'm in the sun grilling uh, with, with a fire. I've got my hand three inches from fire when it's 103 degrees. This seems like like a caveman would know you do that. Uh, and that wasn't a statement on my view of evolution or anything. But it was caveman would do that. Uh, you know, in the winter, you put your hand three inches from a fire in the winter. But we do it in the summer. So you'll be grilling out tomorrow. And uh, most of my adult life, I've used charcoal. One reason is because for years I couldn't afford a gas grill. Finally got, moved to Texas, got where I could afford a gas grill, used it for a while, it broke, and now I'm back to charcoal. So I'm doing charcoal, and uh, so that's what I'll be doing tomorrow, the little briquettes deal. And I've shared this illustration before, but if you've ever done that, you'll notice that the way you make a fire is you put a pile of little uh, briquettes, which doesn't sound real masculine, uh, bricks, I'm going to call them charcoal bricks. You put the bricks in a pile, and you put some incendiary fluid on it, uh, you know, lighter fluid, and then you light it, and big flame comes up, and then they, they heat, uh, the heat is transferred uh, brick to brick, and uh, some of it catches fire, and then it, it warms what next to it, and it catches fire, and when it's all uh, red and kind of coal looking, that's when you're ready to put the meat on the grill. And uh, you've noticed this, have you ever noticed this, that if there is a and this would be a briquette. If there's a little briquette off the pile, you could have a big flame, and then you could have everything red, coal, burning hot, but that one off to the side will not be burning. It'll still be black and unlit and not burning because it's not connected to all the other charcoal because there's a radiation of heat one to another, and they catch and they warm and they heat as they're together, and it's, a, it's an accurate picture of the Christian life. The reality is that if we're going to warm and heat and grow together and mature together and fulfill God's purposes for our life, if we're going to encourage one another as we see the day drawing near, if we are going to consider how to stir one another up to love and good deeds, if we're going to obey any of the one another's in the New Testament, love one another, serve one another, bear one another's burdens, uh, welcome one another, all the one another's in the New Testament, if we're going to do that, it's going to have to be because we're on the pile. We're in the pile, and sometimes it's really hot in the pile, but we're not isolated over here, separate from everywhere else, because that is the sure way to cool off. And the writer of Hebrews knows that, and that's why he is telling them, don't neglect being in the pile together. Pile on. Dog pile for Jesus. That's it. Get in the pile together, connected, because isolation is spiritual death. Isolation, you're not going to hold on. You're not going to draw near isolated because you were created to be a part of a body. If I, very visual illustration, if I cut my hand off and throw it off to the side, we not only have a messy stage, but we have a hand that does not work because it's not connected and it's not going to function like it was supposed to. That's why he says it's not a law. He's not, and make sure everybody's got perfect attendance down at the church. Give a ribbon to every Sunday school kid that makes perfect attendance. It's not some law about perfect attendance. It's a statement here. It's a statement here about being together for the sake of encouragement and growth. Don't neglect it, he says.
problem for us is not only prosperity, but we think we're connected. Because we got Facebook, because we got Twitter, because we text and we Skype, because we do go to meeting, and so we can do business meetings across the country, because we have cell phones and we text, and because we even got the city at Grace Church, right? A, a little uh, way to connect on the city. We think that we're connected. But there's just no substitute for personal presence. No substitute for personal presence. You believe that. Or if you didn't believe that, you'd be home right now and you'd just listen to the podcast when it goes up tonight. You believe, I don't need to convince you. I'm, I'm preaching to the choir. You're in the room talking with people. You believe it. But there is no substitute for personal presence. Here's what, here's what he's saying here. You won't encourage your community if you're not present with your community. His standards for being a part of the community, or rather his goal, is very interesting. It's not you'll get a lot out of it. Come to the Bible study, you'll learn a lot. Come to the community group, it'll be great for you. That's all true. But, but what he says is, let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together. You're not going to stir anybody up if you're not in the room. That's what he's saying. If you're not in relationship, you can't benefit someone else. You can't, if you're not in relationship with them, you won't help them. So, in, in our church, and this works different in different churches, uh, we gather on Sundays. Pretty much all evangelical churches do, unless they have a Saturday night service. But we gather on Sundays. Uh, and then we gather in small groups. That's not the only way to do it. There's other ways to do it. We gather in other ways as well. We have man-to-man and Flourish and Reach and G2 and various other, um, various other ministries in the life of the church. But our primary way is through Sunday morning and small groups. Two ways to gather together. Um, and the goal, and let's talk a little bit about small groups here. The goal is specifically, one of the goals is how, in this passage, can I be together to encourage others, to stir up others, to love and good deeds? How can I help someone else? How can I encourage others to grow in love and good works? This is totally countercultural. I wish I could tell you in the church this is not countercultural. This is a countercultural idea in the church. Even in the church, we normally pitch everything, and pitch isn't too strong of the word sometimes. We normally pitch everything on the benefit that you'll receive. Uh, if you're an unbeliever for something like Bridge, that, we should be pitching it that way. Because we're thinking a lot of unbelievers are coming. I don't expect anyone who's not a Christian to have this idea that I'm, I'm to come and give to others. That's not even the purpose of something like Bridge necessarily. It is to learn. So that, that, that's appropriate there. But when we're talking about Christians um, who are getting together uh, and growing together, this idea that it's what you put into it, that that is the goal, uh, that is just countercultural. I'm, I'm coming because I'm concerned about others, because I want to love others. That is so radical. And I wish I could tell you that was not countercultural in the church. I wish I could tell you that's not countercultural in Grace Church. I wish I could tell you that's not countercultural in me. I mean, some of the illustrations I used about, hey, it'd be easier to do so-and-so, those are like personal illustrations. I didn't have to talk, hey, could I find like a real immature person who doesn't want to go to a group sometime? Tell me, what's that like? Because I can't relate being all godly and all like me. So, uh, that, yeah, I didn't have to, like, interview ten people to find out, wow, what's that life? Oh, man. I, I just had to, like, look in my own heart. 
which wasn't very hard. So th- th- this is, it's just countercultural to say, I want to be together, to build together, to serve together, to grow together. Yes, I'm concerned about my growth as a disciple. Yes, I want to grow and know Jesus better. But I want you to as well. So I'm here with you so that we can help one another. That is different. But that's the very thing that Hebrews 10 calls the church to. Consider, think about it, plan, pay attention to how you can stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together. That's one of the reasons we're doing a reset on our small groups. If you weren't here at the family meeting, you can listen to this on the city. Uh, We basically made the whole church free agents. We just said, everybody's free, go find a group. We're not doing eternal small groups anymore. We're doing them at a one-year cycle. So you're welcome to go back this week. We're starting new groups, fall. You're welcome to go back to the group you've been a part of. That's great. You're welcome to start and go to a new group, visit a new group. You do not have to explain yourself to everybody. You do not have to get a written permission note from your former small group leader or your parents. Uh, you just can go to a new group and find a new group and uh, spend September visiting a couple groups if you want to and see where you're going to be for the next year. So that's what we're doing. We're looking at a year at a time, and next August we'll call everybody afresh to think about it again. And where do you want to, to build this, this year? So that's kind of what we're doing as a reset. We are joining, uh, the pastors are joining in this uh, reset for the fall as well. We have always had our own uh, small group. Uh, which we're going to continue that in sort of a modified way, and then we're going to jump into groups, not lead groups, jump into them for the fall as well. So I'm not going to tell you what group I'm going to jump into because it would be me and the leader there and no one else. Uh, so maybe my wife, but no one else is coming, so I'm not going to tell you. Uh, it'll just be really awkward when you show up and I'm in your group. So I'll be in one of the groups uh, this week, and uh, we will do that through the fall, be a part of this process as well, joining groups to stir each other up in a new way. Encourage one another. I was thinking I'm going to close with a little meditation on this. How do we encourage and stir up one another? It's really more than just showing up. What happens when we're together? How do we encourage one another as we pray together, sing together, read God's word together, apply it together, challenge, encourage, help one another? I was thinking one way is we encourage each other by reminder. We encourage each other by reminder. We all have a very short spiritual memory. We tend to forget the gospel. We tend to forget who God is. We tend to forget what the Savior has done for us. We tend to forget his forgiveness. We tend to forget our access to him. We tend to to forget his love for us. We tend to forget his holiness. We tend to forget his faithfulness. You say, not me. Have you ever worried? Have you ever been anxious? Have you ever been fearful? you have character of God amnesia at that moment because we forget what he's like. And when we are together, as I hear you share about God's faithfulness in your life, it's a reminder to me, oh yeah, he is who he said he is and he's proving it in this person's life. That stirs me up. That helps me when I hear that. I'm encouraged to press on. As you hear my challenges and pray for me and point me to the faithfulness of God, share a scripture with me, Uh, are present with me, let me know that you're for me and with me. I'm encouraged to persevere. I'm encouraged to persevere. We underestimate our need for reminder. We just so quick, I I know that. Oh, I've got that. I've heard that. There's many in the room, I haven't said one thing today that's new to you. Every statement I have made, there, there are some in the room, every statement I have made today 
you have known conceptually. Maybe I used a different word or a different phrase, or but you knew that the fact, you knew the idea. So you you haven't picked up one new idea today, but you've been reminded. I hope I've been reminded. When I read this scripture, I was like, I've never heard of any of this. No, I, I, I was familiar with this passage. I've taught this passage, but I was reminded afresh. C.S. Lewis said, people have more need to be reminded than instructed. We have more need to be reminded than instructed. We need reminder of who God is, what he's done. We need reminder of what's here, the access we have to the Father through Christ. We need reminded of the grace of God. We need reminded of him. So we encourage one another by reminder. When we're together, sharing our lives, reminder. We encourage one another by example. I, I, I can't quantify how much I've learned from the example of others. My wife, Ginger, should be in the second service, but we have been married for 27 years. 25 of those years, we've been in a small group. Not the same one, but we've been in various small groups in several different churches over 25 years. And I can't, I can't even begin to quantify the benefit of the example of others for me. We encourage by example. Paul said, what you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things and the God of peace will be with you. Now, the Apostle Paul is not going to be in your group Tuesday night, Wednesday night. Uh, He will via the scripture, but he will not be there live. You will not be able to practice what you saw in him. You can read, but you can practice what you learn and see in others. Discipleship is about sharing our lives with others so that we stimulate love and good works in others. So that we benefit and we learn from how other people walk with the Lord. That is discipleship. Discipleship has this modeling aspect to it. It has this example aspect to it. It has this, uh, this follow me as I follow Christ example to it. We've made a really big deal over the last two years about this idea of separating principle from practice. And by that we mean there are a lot of places in the scripture where we get a general principle that could be fulfilled in multiple different practices. So as a church, we're not going to impose specific practices on people personally for their individual lives if the scripture doesn't impose that. We're going to call them rather to look at the principle of scripture and make a biblically informed decision about how they educate their children, how and if they consume alcohol, what are their health choices, what is their view of medical treatment or alternative medical treatment? What is their political viewpoint? What are their entertainment choices? And on and on and on. We've given these examples. So we want to look at biblical principles, but then people need to apply biblical principles in the freedom of their own conscience for the glory of God and, and, and for the good of others for that matter as well. That doesn't mean that we don't believe in any practice at all and that there never should be any practice at all. It's not like we should come into a group and say, well, I'm not going to say what I'm doing about my devotional life because that'd be legalistic if I told you I read my Bible and everybody, ooh. Now, if the leader comes into the group and says, okay, here's what pleases God. You wake up at 6 o'clock, you read uh, one Old Testament passage, one New Testament passage, uh, and then you pray the structure of the Lord's Prayer every day. If you want to please God, you have to do that. That's legalism. That's taking the principle interact with God through prayer and the word that we can find that everywhere in the scripture. And that's giving a specific practice about time of day, how long you read, how much you read, where you read. So 
having said that, I would really like to know how someone else practices their devotional life. Not because it's a rule I have to follow, but because it's an example that benefits me. So I was thinking of today about, I remember being in college. I had this memory, actually this morning, of being in college and getting up early and going down to the dorm study hall. I just had this flashback this morning. And it's a good flashback. And I went into the study hall and I remember reading five chapters of Psalms. Because someone had told me, if you read five psalms a day in a month, you can read the whole book of psalms, because there's 150. And I wasn't very good at math, but that was helpful. 150 divided by five (laughs) equals 30. And as long as it's not like February or something, I could do that in a month. I was slow. Okay, nobody sat down to me and said, you must... But they said, here's what's helped me. And I was able to look at the example of someone and say, okay, I don't have to do that, but that's a good way. I'd like to try that. I'd like to, as a college kid, read through the whole book of Psalms, and I can't do it in a sitting, but I can do that. You see, we help each other by example. We don't impose our example where the Scripture gives freedom, but we stir one another up by example. I would like to know. I've learned from people, how do you budget your money? I've learned from people, how do you communicate with your wife? I've learned from people, I just gave example, about how to have devotions. I've learned from people about how to manage your time. I've learned from people about a work ethic and how to glorify God through your work during the week. I've learned from people how to feast And how to celebrate. Yeah, we need training in that. How to feast, especially some of us that are too narrow. We need some training in letting loose a little bit. Uh, How to feast and how to celebrate. I've learned from people about how to evaluate certain uh, entertainment choices. I've never had anybody hand me a list and say you can and cannot watch this. And if you did, I'd throw it away. But I have had people tell me, here's how I think about it, and I've benefited from that. And I have had people say, here's how I think about it. Well, I think about it a little differently. And I go back to the Word, and I think about it, and I don't think about it like either they do. I'm going to do something a third way. But I've thought about it, and I've benefited from their example. Discipleship requires example, and we encourage one another in example when we, by grace, help one another. Counsel, encourage, strengthen one another. There's a lot of example in this church. A lot of opportunities, for example. There are a lot of wise people in this church. And if you are, okay, I'm just going to say, if you are in your 20s and 30s, you should. You should be grabbing onto someone and asking questions. There are older people in this church that can help you with everything I said. Your job, your money, your sex life, your communication life for married couples, your communication life, your church life, managing your time, managing your finances, theological questions. There's a lot of help. There's a lot of help. And we must not think, well, I can't give an example. Or If I tell them, I mean, uh, no, it's just me. No, we need to be, we got to encourage one another in love and good works. And that's tangible. That's on the ground. You love people in practical ways. Good works are tangible. They're not generic. They're specific. And so we want to help one another. We never want to impose practices that the Bible does not impose. But we want to learn from maybe a multitude of practices so that we benefit and we mature as disciples. And there's grace to say, well, I'm going to do that a little differently. That's fine. As long as you've thought about it and you're pursuing the Lord and it's in line with biblical principle. But the purpose is we want to be moving on. We want to be encouraged. We want to be doing good works. We want to be loving 
Well, I don't have to go to a small group because I don't have any example. I'm a mess. I can't help others. You know what? You could be the biggest encouragement to the whole group. Because there's a lot of more seasoned people. You're a mess, and you're going to come in. If you'll come in and just be real and say who you are, it will help the whole group. It will especially help the seasoned people. It'll help because that, that raw honesty, there's nothing more powerful than humility. That raw honesty, I need help. You know, I was meeting with somebody this week. as a pastor, not from this church. And this pastor was a fair bit younger than I am. And this pastor opened up his life very personally, different church, oh, very personally, and asked my counsel on something. And once I kind of ooh, shared an idea, he asked more and more. So at that meeting, I am kind of the more seasoned one, at least on paper. And this is the less seasoned pastor who came as a question asker. As someone who says, I don't have it figured out and need some counsel. Do you know what happened to me? This was my thought. I used to be like that. I used to pursue more help. I used to ask more questions. I used to humble myself and open myself up more openly like he is doing and take a risk and take a step of faith, maybe with somebody I don't even know that well. We walked out of the meeting. He got some C plus, C minus counsel from me. I got challenged by the Holy Spirit. The guy who was coming to learn had a greater effect on me, I assure, than I did on him. The same is true in your community group. It's not the person who can spout off all the answers and share theology and, and just rattle off the six podcasts that they listened to this week where they got all the answers. That guy's not really helping anybody, by the way, so don't be that guy. The person who's going to really help is the honest person who comes in. <laughs> you think you're a mess? I, I find people, I'll, I'll preach a message, people will come and the point they'll remember is when I shared a failure. That's what they benefit from. It's not when I shared I did this, that, or the other. Same is true. You come, you open your life, and it will be the most penetrating, life-changing thing for the other one. Here's what you don't realize. You will encourage and stimulate and spur on others to love and good deeds by your own reality. The more real, the better. So you, I, I don't have anything to contribute. I'm a mess. No, you have everything to contribute. And if you come as one needing help, you will stir the group up. Probably, no, not probably, for sure, more than the know-it-all who has no needs. The person with no needs who knows everything will not help the group. The person who has needs and is honest, you will provoke the group. I'm out of time. I had a couple other things. Encourage people by love. That's another one. <laughs> encourage one another as we love them. We encourage them. Uh, encourage people with perspective. I just wanted to say this. We get so stuck in our own world. I get so stuck in the way I think about things and my perspective of things and my little world and how does it affect me and how does it affect my family. It is just great to be around other per people and know what's going on. God's called us to take an interest. When I take an interest in someone else, my perspective just broadens. Life's not just about me. Oh, wow, I thought, the whole, I, thought I was the sun and all the planets of the world revolved around me, starting with my wife, just revolving around me and my kids and, and then my friends and Sunday morning. You guys, right? You're all revolving around me, right? See, that's the way we live. That's the way we think. It's just great to get... Just say, hey, you know what? They're, my solar system's not the reality of the solar system. Jesus is at the center. We're revolving around him, and I'm called to get in your revolution and enter into your world. And it just helps my perspective. Here's a crazy idea. When I enter into someone else's burdens and help carry them, I find like my burdens are lighter. 
When I go to serve someone else and help them take an interest in them and pray for them, my prayer life is better. When I get my mind off myself, amazing, I have more joy than when I'm just thinking in me world. And so this, this is what, as you encourage others to love, as you encourage others with your presence, as you encourage others to good works, your perspective will change as you pray, as you help, as you weep, as you laugh, as you encourage, as you correct, as you strengthen, as you offer practical help. We lose perspective really quickly. We're going to walk out of here, and within a half hour, it's easy to go back to me world. Maybe less than that. Community is intended to bring an eternal perspective. That's why he says, encourage one another all the more as you see the day drawing near. He's saying, when you're together, you'll realize an eternal perspective. Jesus is coming back. Meeting together will help you remember this life ain't all there is. It's short. He's coming. Let's make it count. That's what he says. It changes perspective. If I'm isolated on the lazy boy with the remote, I do not have an eternal. And I'm not, I have cable, I have a TV, I have a, I have a lazy boy and a remote. I'm not opposed. I'm not saying that stuff's sinful. I'm not opposed to that. But I'm saying when I'm there and vegging there, I don't have the perspective that I do when I'm interacting with you about life. So this week, gather. Gather. We're restarting. At the back on your way out, there's an orange sheet, uh, and it just gives all our groups, and it gives where they are, and it gives the phone number of us, the leader of the group. You can call and let them know you're coming. Call and find out where they meet. They have an email on here. You can find out what the address is, where they're meeting uh, Sundays, Tuesdays, and Wednesdays. The groups are all there. If you're not in a group, or if you're not, rather, I'm sorry, no one's in a group right now. We all will show up at a group. Uh, if you are not a member of the church, we have a connect group as a starting place, and that's the very first thing on this page, connect group. So you can go get in a connect group. They'll get you connected, get you started. In a couple months, uh, we'll have a new members day where you can come to a day of teaching um, or part of a day and join if you would like to become a member after that. But the way to come in is through the connect group, so you can do that. So, but everybody, uh, we're encouraging everybody to find a place to fulfill the one another's of Scripture. Pick a group. If you're a member, if you're not, join the Connect group and get going on that pathway to joining in. So, gather, make a friend, find a group, encourage one another, reset, reboot. It's turned off. It's turning right back on right now. It just rebooted. Go find a group and walk out the Scripture. Let's pray. You've been listening to a message from Grace Church. For more information, visit our website or write us at podcast at gracechurchfrisco.org.